Hey, we talked last week, we started into the book of Hebrews, and specifically into Hebrews chapter 11, and we've got a little video we're going to show you, I think that they've got it. It's a little video that kind of summarizes Hebrews for you, helps you understand the story behind the book, and, and help you understand the book itself so that you can understand Hebrews chapter 11 and how that fits in the book, okay? So have we got that video? The letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God, where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians that's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. So the author saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. 
If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the Messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, this final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people.
That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. That's it. <clears throat> Let's go home. <laughs> I told you I could do it before 645. Man, I wish I could draw like that. I wanted to show you that because I want you to understand in visual form as well as hearing it again, uh, pretty much what we said last week and, and that the first 10 chapters are, are describing who Jesus is and why you should... Uh, why he is greater, superior than everything else you put your faith in. And then in chapter 11 and through the rest of the letter, he's saying, this is who you should put your faith in. And this is what it means to follow him by faith. This is what it means to, to trust in Jesus Christ. So look on your notes here uh, on the colored side where it says heroes of the faith. Uh, just for review, faith is not some feeling we manufacture. It is our response, and I underlined that on your notes. It is our response. Faith is your response to what God has revealed to you in His Word and in His will. You see, when God speaks, our choice is either faith or unbelief. It's literally a choice between obedience and disobedience. And so when we come to Hebrews chapter 11, He gives us pictures of people who put their faith in Jesus. Chapter 11 is one picture after another from the Old Testament. Men and women who decided to put their faith in God and trust Him. So look on your notes there on the other side now. Beginning in verse 4 to the end of the chapter, we have a summary of the lives and the labors of great men and women of faith found in the Old Testament. And in each instance, their faith in God made the difference in their lives. Their faith led to action and obedience. I just can't stress enough this idea of faith leading to action. Faith leading to obedience. It's interesting that the first person mentioned as an example of faith is the first person in the Bible to ever demonstrate faith. The Jewish readers of this letter especially needed to be reminded that from the very beginning faith has always been, or faith has been the only way, if you want to fill in the blank, Faith has been the only way sinful man could be restored to a holy God. That's always been the case. And we see that in, in our story today, the story of a man named Abel. Let's open your Bibles, if you haven't already, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. The first person in this chapter of, of the heroes of the faith is Abel. By faith, verse 4, by faith, Abel... Notice there's an action word here, offered. Not by faith, Abel believed. It's an action. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, 
we notice again, it's underlined again, it was by faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, we hear it a third time, he still speaks even though he is dead. So the first person in the Bible to exhibit faith was a man named Abel. He's also the first person in this heroes of the faith in the book of Hebrews. So, let's ask the question, who was Abel? Put this on your notes. He was the second son of Adam and Eve. Who was the first son? Who was his brother? Cain. So, his, if you want to fill in the blank, his brother was Cain. So, so Adam and Eve uh, had two, two sons, Cain and Abel. And I want you to understand something about Adam and Eve. They could not have been persons of faith as just as their sons could have been. What I mean by that is, Adam and Eve saw God face to face. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They fellowshiped with Him. They talked to God in the garden. And until they sinned, they had no need of faith. Adam and Eve had a first-hand encounter with God. They had no need of faith. Even after they sinned, they were banned and banned from the garden. They still had memories of what God said and what God was like. They still had a knowledge, a first-hand knowledge of who God was and what God was like. But their children, their, these two brothers, were conceived after the fall. If you want to put that on your notes. These two brothers were conceived after the fall. What I mean by that, they were born outside of Eden need to remember that. They were born outside of Eden. Therefore, they were born into sin. They had sin natures passed down to them from their mother and their father. They were the third and fourth persons to ever live on the earth. And so here's what you need to understand. They had no first-hand knowledge of God, if you put that on your notes. Cain and Abel had no first-hand knowledge of God. I'm sure they talked to mom and dad about what God was like. I'm sure mom and dad told lots of stories about walking with God in the garden. But they had no first-hand knowledge of God. And so the story of Cain and Abel uh, is alluded to in verse 4. Let's read it one more time. Then we're going to go to Genesis and read what it was all about. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, what he brought as a sacrifice. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. So, let's go to Genesis chapter 4 and find out what all this is about, what happened there. Genesis chapter 4. Just chapter 4. We're going to begin in, actually in chapter 3, verse 23 to get the context. It says, So the Lord God banished him, Adam and Eve, banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. This, of course, was after the fall, after sin, after they had disobeyed God. They were banished from the Garden of Eden. Verse 24, After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, outside of the Garden of Eden, after they have been cast out, we begin to read in, in Genesis chapter 4, the first five verses. It says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. 
She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, in order to fully understand Abel's step of faith, it's important to note three things here. And I think there's some blanks on your notes for you to fill in. Yes. First of all, I want you to note that there was a place to worship. There was a place to worship. Uh, they, they both brought something to a particular place. They each brought something as an offering, the Bible says, to the Lord. Do you see that in the text? Help me find it. What verse is it where they brought something to the Lord? Uh, verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought some, some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. That, that's an important phrase. And Abel brought fat portions, verse 4, from some of the firstborns of the flock. And so they were bringing these offerings to the Lord. I don't know where they brought them, but apparently there was a place of worship. Apparently there was some place set up because it says that they brought it to the Lord. They had to bring it to a place. Number two, there was also a time for worship. There was a time for worship. It says in verse 3, in the course of time, this happened. There appears to be a designated time that God had appointed for worship. The fact that Cain and Abel came to sacrifice at the same time suggests that God had chosen the time. That God had selected a particular time for worship. God had selected probably a particular place for worship. There was a time, there was a place for them to come and and participate in this worship. And then number three, which is very important, there was a way to worship. Now, I I can't answer the question, how did they know how to worship, except to say either they had been told by God, this is what I expect, or maybe their parents had taught them about sacrifice and about sin offerings. One or the other, either God told them or their parents told them about sacrifice and sin offerings, the fact that only God accepted one sacrificial offering seems to indicate that he, has, he had established a pattern with them. Look in verse 7. Look, look in verse 7. Skip on. Well, read verse 6 and 7. When the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? He says in verse 7, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? It sounds like he's told them the right thing to do. Sounds like God has told them somehow, either through... Adam and Eve, or, or God speaking to them in some form or fashion, it sounds like God has told them, this is what I desire, this is what I expect. It's significant that the first recorded act of worship in the Bible was a sacrifice. It was a sin offering. And the Bible tells us back in Hebrews eleven four that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Abel must have learned from his parents or perhaps heard from God about the need for a sin offering. So he did what God said. He offered God 
a sin offering. He, he acknowledged his sin and he acknowledged his faith in God's mercy. He brought a sacrifice. A sacrifice to acknowledge his sin and to acknowledge his need for God's mercy. Abel brought a sacrifice. He did what God said. Don't miss that. He did what God said. Now the difference... Cain, on the other hand, was disobedient. Cain did not offer God a sacrifice. What did Cain offer God? Come on, help me. Yeah, fruits of the soil. Go back to Hebrews 11.4 for a moment. Go back to Hebrews 11.4. Hebrews 11.4. It says, by faith, Abel offered God, what's that next three words? A better sacrifice. He offered God a, a better sacrifice than Cain. Because apparently God had prescribed a blood sacrifice. Somehow these two, these two men apparently knew what God requested, what God demanded, what God wanted. The difference between the two is simply this, Abel gave God what he asked for. Cain gave God something less than he asked for. Abel was obedient to God. Cain was disobedient. Abel acknowledged his sin when he brought the sacrifice. Cain did not when he brought the fruit of the soil. Abel worshipped God as God apparently had instructed. Cain worshipped God in his own way. He brought the fruit of the soil. Abel did what was demanded Cain did what was convenient. Now please hear this. Cain believed in God. How do you know that? How, how would we surmise that Cain believed in God? Yeah, exactly. He actually brought a sacrifice to him. He brought him an offering. Well, not a sacrifice, but an offering. He brought him an offering. He acknowledged that God existed and that he owed God some sort of worship. By the fact that he was bringing this offering, he was acknowledging that God existed and that he deserved some kind of worship. But he made the mistake of thinking he could come to God on his own terms. Somebody read Proverbs 14.12 out loud. Look it up real quick. Or read it out loud. Proverbs 14.12. Who's going to read it for me? Proverbs 14, 12. Yes, thank you. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Cain, I'm sure, was thinking, well, this works. You know, I got this garden. I had a lot of produce. I'm just going to take some of that, and I'm going to take it to, as my offering to the Lord. And so I'm going to take it to him. There is a way that seems... But I want you to know something about the mercy and the grace of God. Even though he got it wrong, God gave him a chance to get it right. Didn't he? What well, wasn't it in verse 7? Back in, it was back in Genesis. But, but, but he said, if... Or what, hang on a second, I'm jumping around. Genesis... Help me find it real quick. It, it is verse 7? Yeah, chapter 4, verse 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? 
if you do what is right, in other words, if, if you do what I told you to do, you've still got a chance to get this right. You've still got a chance to do what I ask you to do. You still have a chance to bring a proper sacrifice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that even underlines the, the situation with Cain. Adam and Eve certainly would have, would have passed down that story of how the Lord killed these animals and, and made these clothes to cover our nakedness and, and the sacrifice of our sin. I, I'm absolutely sure they, they told those stories. And, and Cain was like, nah, I'm going to do this. This seems like it would be fine. Here's what I want you to understand. In some ways, we could say that Cain become, became the father of false religion. Because false religion is trying to come to God by any other way than the way God has prescribed you to come to Him. Cain was the first person to say, basically, one way to God is as good as another. Cain's disobedience and setting his own standards of, of living before God really is, is kind of gave way to Satan's world system. I, I want you to go to the, the book of Jude. It's, it's before Revelation. I want you to go to the book of Jude. Jude only has one chapter. I want you to look at verse <clears throat> Verse 11. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir, etc. I just want you to notice they have taken the way of Cain. Disobedience to God is always the standard of the world system. Ignoring God, uh, feeling like we don't have to do exactly what God says. But Abel, on the other hand, going back to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, Abel, on the other hand, it says this, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. It wasn't by his goodness, it was by faith. By faith, he was commended as a, as a what? As a righteous man. When God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Abel obtained righteousness by faith. It Really, Abel's... Abel's sacrifice was a precursor to the cross. John MacArthur said this. Uh, he said it much better than I could, so I'm just going to quote him. John MacArthur said, The first sacrifice, listen to this. This is good. You might want to try to jot this down as I'm saying it. The first sacrifice was Abel's lamb. One lamb for one person. Later came the Passover. One lamb for one family. Then came the Day of Atonement with one lamb for one nation. Finally came Good Friday, one lamb for the whole world. Man, that's good, isn't it? One lamb for the whole world. But, but Abel's first offering, that first offering was an, a precursor to the cross. But I want you, as we close, I want to make sure you understand how Abel obtained his righteousness. The only thing that obtained righteousness for Abel was this. It was his faith. He did what God told him to do. 
He was obedient to God by faith. Abel was counted righteous, not because he was righteous, but because he trusted God and obeyed God. Now, I want to ask you a question. You you can answer me. When Abel offered the sacrifice, when he offered his sacrifice, did he walk away with the same problems he had before he came? Exactly. Elaborate on that, Keith. Exactly. The biggest thing is this. When he walked away, he still had the same problems that he had. But when he walked away, he walked away with God's approval. He had God's approval because he came to God in faith. He sacrificed his offering in faith. Believing in who God is and God would do what he said. And that's why this verse ends by saying, And by faith he speaks even though he's dead. He was the first to exhibit faith. Adam and Eve didn't, at least not initially recorded in Scripture. In Scripture, Abel is the first person to exhibit faith. And the faith was, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to offer sacrifice, believing that by my faith, I acknowledge who He is and that He will forgive me of my sin. That's still true today, isn't it? We acknowledge the sacrifice. And that by faith, He will forgive us of our sin. Father, I thank You for Jesus. That He ultimately is our sacrifice. He ultimately is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. One Lamb for the whole world. It started out one Lamb for one person. And then when Jesus came, it was one Lamb for the world. And may we by faith place our faith in who you are, acknowledge our sin, and by faith receive your mercy and your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.